prepare your ears, humans. Happy, sad, confused begins now. Today on Happy, Sad, Confused, Baz Luhrmann takes on the king with Elvis. Hey guys, Josh Horowitz here with another edition of Happy, Sad, Confused. And yes, another... Yeah, he's an iconic filmmaker. Say what you will, but Baz Luhrmann, he makes a mark with every single film of his, and they are rare treats. He does He's not a prolific filmmaker, but he is a memorable filmmaker. Each film, an indelible piece of movie making, certainly from Strictly Ballroom, which is 30 years ago, if you can imagine, through Romeo and Juliet and Moulin Rouge, and now his new biopic, Elvis. Uh, this was a rare treat. Um, rare because, again, Baz doesn't work, or doesn't at least, I mean, he's working constantly, but his films uh, take a while. Um, so rare in that case, but also rare in the way this happened. Um, you know, if you've been watching our video versions in, in, in podcast form, whether it's on the Patreon page or through the promos that I put up on my social media, you know I've been doing most of these over Zoom, 99% of them over Zoom. Well, in this case, I got an invitation. And it was an invitation I couldn't pass up. It was an invitation to Baz Luhrmann's home. Um, and you know I'm not going to pass that up. Uh, Baz is actually a New Yorker. I mean, he has a couple homes, but he spends most of his time when he can in New York City, as I do. And um, I was just privileged and honored that he was um, so gregarious and welcoming to let me into his home to have this chat. And he was such a lovely host. Um, it was, I mean, you know, without betraying any confidences, like Baz Luhrmann's home is exactly what you, what you would expect it to be. It is gorgeous. It is impeccable. It is maybe eccentric, but in the best possible way. But it is... It it is um, deliciously Baz in every way, um, and it was exciting to see him in that environment. Um, we sat down in his screening room and just had a lovely chat between whirlwind visits, uh, or travel, I should say, around the world for him right now. He is going from country to country, city to city. He was in New York City for, I think, like 24 hours um, in between visits to Memphis and Toronto, and again, was very kind to uh, carve out this time out in his schedule for a, uh, a career chat. Not just a chat about his new film, but indeed this is a chat about his entire career. And he's a lovely man, a thoughtful man, a self-deprecating man, um, but uh, a true artist through and through. And I really, really dug this chat. His new film, which is about to hit theaters as you hear this, um, is Elvis, which you probably haven't you can't miss, right? This is a big movie, uh, a big biopic, but in a very Baz Luhrmann way, not a typical sort of biopic. It is has beautiful um, cinematography and production design and performances. Oh my God, the performances, guys. Um, you've heard a little bit about this by now, I assume. But Austin Butler, who's a relatively, I wouldn't say he's a big movie star, at least not yet, Guys, he's about to be. He stars as Elvis Presley in this one. Um, he's bounced around a bit. He was kind of like a Nickelodeon kid and a Disney kid. Um, and then in recent years, he showed up in, most notably, in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. You may remember him as Tex um, in that great sequence on the ranch with Brad Pitt. Um, made a great mark in that one in just a couple scenes. And Baz snapped him up. This was a very famous kind of 
audition scenario where everyone from um, Miles Teller to Harry Styles was up for the role of Elvis Presley. As you can imagine, any actor would covet this sort of role in a Baz Luhrmann film. And Austin got the role. And man, he really kills it in this. He's fantastic in the film. And um, it is one of those moments where not only does he jump off the screen and he does he transform on the screen in the ways that, you know, I think I mentioned um, Jim Morrison in The Doors way back when, or, or, or J-Lo as Selena in recent years, Rami Malek um, as Freddie Mer- Mercury. Um, this, is, this is one of those kind of performances. And I really do believe this, is, this, could, um, this could catapult him. Austin's got a lot of exciting things up, uh, coming up. And, and I actually, by the way, had a chance to chat with Austin for MTV News. And by the time you listen to this, or maybe within a few hours, um, my chat with him should be up on MTV News' YouTube page. Um, and again, I'll put that out on my social media. So this is Elvis Week in Josh Horowitz, Happy Sad, Confused Universe Land, uh, the Baz Luhrmann conversation here, the Austin Butler conversation on MTV News, um, all things Elvis. And uh, I hope you guys enjoy it and check out the movie. Um, like I said, it is a rare treat when Baz delivers a piece of entertainment, and it is, uh, it's a special one, as all his work is. So wanted to mention all of that, and again, um, so excited to get to do this in his home. Oh my gosh, it was, it was really cool. Um, other things to mention. Well, by the time you listen to this, uh, I've gotten such great reception to my interview with Chris Evans that I did for MTV. Thank you guys uh, for checking it out and saying the kind things you, that you have if you haven't checked it out. Uh, again, that's over at MTV News' YouTube page, and we covered quite a lot in that chat. He was promoting Lightyear, but we talked about um, everything from, yes, Marvel and his love of Star Wars and musical theater to um, mental health and anxiety. And somehow we packed a lot in, and it's a, a conversation I'm very proud of with one of the biggest movie stars on the planet. So really thrilled about that. Um, what else to say? I taped a new sketch for Comedy Central today with a newbie, a young lady who I have not um, done much with before, um, got to know today, and she's got an exciting future ahead of her. She is already an accomplished actor, but also has some really cool films coming up this summer. There's a tease for you, and she killed it in the sketch this morning. Um, I can't wait to show that to you. That will be out in a few weeks. Um, what else can I tease? I don't know. Comic-Con is around the corner. We're gearing up for that. I'll be there in a big way. Anything else? Anything else? I guess that that's enough of a tease right now. Um, a reminder, um, most if not all of the Happy, Sad, Confused conversations are available in video form on the Patreon. I will say not the Baz Luhrmann one. This was just audio only. This was the rare one that was just audio only, though we snapped some really cool photos that I'll put up on social media. But 99% of the others are in video form. And if, if you subscribe to the uh, Patreon uh, at the producer, no, no, it's the middle level. It's the second tier. You get every single video we've ever produced for Patreon. So go over to patreon.com slash happy, sad, confused. Ton of game night episodes, happy, sad, confused episodes, ask Josh anything episodes. Uh, we give you, hopefully, I think, a lot of bang for your buck. So everybody there has been very kind and seems to dig it. So if you're if you're curious about it, give us a try for a month. See if you like it. If What's the worst that happens? You cancel. That, that's all. No harm, no foul. Um, okay, let's get to the main event. Um, as I said, you know, you guys know I love it when I talk to like a great auteur, a unique talent, a unique filmmaker that I've watched 
virtually my entire life. And as, a, as you'll hear in this conversation, Baz's films uh, are very personal to me for a variety of reasons. And, and you'll hear that in this conversation. Um, remember to check out Elvis in theaters any moment now. Check out my Austin Butler interview. And uh, here's the main event. Here's me and Mr. Baz for I'm privileged to welcome at last Mr. Baz Orman to the Happy Say Confused podcast. Not only that, I have to say, I'm privileged to be in, in your home, sir. Thank you. It's a, it's, yeah, well, it says well, a lot well, of well, you to Someone was here. just about to sit on a pile of underpants, so <laughs> that's how intimate we're getting, Josh. We had to find a room that wasn't sort of echoey. Um, no, it's brilliant. As a, as a New Yorker, I always love to see. Um, you've made your home here. You've made your home oh, here. Oh, yeah, and- we, know, we New Yorkers. I mean, we, 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 be, we were always... Like, I have a philosophy, you know, dream in Paris and, you know, have fun in London if you've got money and maybe dance in Brazil, get lost in Shanghai or Tokyo and, you know, Australia's home, work in L.A., but live in New York, live in New York. It does strike me, though, like, look, part of what I when I think of your films is you're a world builder yeah. and you have you've created a world for yourself yeah. here, a far cry from the kind of environment I'm sure you grew up in. As well, a kid. Well, yes, but interestingly enough, if I really think about it, I'm so old I can say anything I like, you know, unfiltered. <laughs> That's the best uh, kind of podcast. Yeah, I know. This is the kind of podcast you want, isn't it? <laughs> um, uh, but I built worlds. We had a world. Uh, it's not like I lived in this dusty gas station right. that was decrepit <laughs> and the wind was blowing and a truck would drive in once. We, my father, we built a world on the gas station. It was like a caravansia in the sense of the real world, which means that was when, you know, camel trains would stop and it was a whole little world that you'd stay at. And, you know, it had a restaurant and we all had different things that we did, like I bred fish and, you know, um, dad had a prodigious kind of imagination and we all got whipped up in it. And then we had very interesting people come and live with us from artists and things like that. So, I think actually I just brought my world building with me. Yeah, a little h- heightened version of that in a way, just like your films. A, a yeah, bit. I just so. couldn't live in the caravansia all my life. Fair enough. Know? Fair enough. I have to say, like, I mean, like many, I feel such a deep personal connection with your films, and that's very unique for filmmakers to cut through. And, and you know this by now, like your films. To, regardless of subject matter, they cut through, and people feel a real personal connection. I, I mean, I'll tell you a brief anecdote in that. You've probably heard a version of this story many times, but like Ewan and Moulin Rouge um, played a part in like my proposal to my wife. Like he like <laughs> he, like he helped me propose actually many years ago. Ewan really? and we still have the signed poster of Moulin in our in our home. And I know like I'm not unique. Many people feel that way about your films. And I'm just curious. I mean, when did that strike you? That's not something you can chase. But yeah, th- but no. that's something that you must have observed over the years. That the connection that folks mm. feel with your films is really powerful. Well, I think. If the question is, did I set out to make films that people get married to and propose to? Probably not. Sure. But I think that I'm old enough in the process to have to acknowledge that there's a certain set of patterns in the work that I do. And certainly there's a language. Right. There's a cinematic language, which part of it was kind of by design. And then part of it, I think, I realize now is just who I am. Yeah. It's how, I mean, a painter, David Hockney, who was like some of the operas I did, once said, oh, it's the way I see things. And I think I know it's the way I tell things. Now, not everybody likes the way I tell things, but if you like the way I tell a story, 
then the connection is can be deep. You know. Well, it's the specificity of vision, right? The more mm -hmm. the more specific I find uh, a story to be told and a singular vision from feeling a singular vision from a filmmaker, even if it's obviously a very collaborative art form. Yeah. Um, ironically, the more deeply connected you feel to it because you're you're feeling someone's humanity come through in a way. Yeah, I think yes. I mean, look, um, and then then the, 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 there's filmmakers. And there's a style of filmmaking where the idea is that the storyteller's way of telling is invisible. Right, they disappear. And there yep. are others that do... Neither is better or worse, it's just different. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, you know, as I say, I've just said recently, I've got in not a lot of trouble for it, but I said, you know, I loved the Batman, but man cannot live by Batman alone. You know? <laughs> I think we can all agree on that. Yeah, I, mean, I really thought it was great. Me but too. I mean, But I mean, there are... The, my whole process is about creative adventure yeah. for me. What do I need in my life? And how can I put something out there at the end of it that's useful? And they aren't short. You know, I talking about world building, I could live inside the research world of a Gatsby and right. never make the film. Right. I could live inside all this journey I've gone on with Elvis and the Colonel and never make the film. Right. At some point, you've got to make the film because people are going like, hey, I've been funding you for years to wander around <laughs> pretending you're, you know, F. Scott Fitzgerald spending time in speakeasies a little bit too much, my friend. <laughs> Could you roll camera, you know? Let's talk a bit about Elvis. It's another exceptional piece of work. Um, and, Thank you, man. And you, look, you, my sense over the years is maybe the only thing you enjoy more than working with movie stars is helping create movie stars. And it's really a special thing. I just spoke to Austin the other day. Yeah, and he's I've, something special. He's, he's very special. He and, really is. And, um, and I, I look at MTV, we, we knew him from his shows there and I'd interviewed him there and he was so mm -hmm. sweet and soft-spoken and to see him like transform from like this introvert seemingly into the most spectacular entertainer yeah. of all time is yeah. remarkable. Yeah. I mean, you're, you've, you know something I don't because I only ever met him. I mean, I'll talk about the casting process in a minute, but you're the first person I've met who actually knew him before. <laughs> yeah, you knew Jesus before he was a superstar. I mean, that's a song. Uh, that's an old 70s song. But um, I should have said that. But, uh, oh, my God. I was kidding. But you knew him before he was going down the road of Elvis, and I only knew him when he was going down the road of Elvis. Right. But I heard he was shy and very introverted. But that's not the man you met. Well, no, he was already down the road. He was already down Elvis Presley Boulevard uh, to a degree. I mean, I gave him great resources and a process and, and, and a world and support. But, I mean, it wasn't a normal casting process. I mean, well, none of yours are, to be fair. No, no. But <laughs> I know enough about your work. You're right about that. <laughs> but, but what I mean is, I did get this now mythological tape that was. This kid wrapped up in a, um, a gown, right. playing Unchained Melody and Weeping to the Sky. And I later learned that he wants the role but does a tape, thinks it's bad. And the fact that he lost his mum at the same right. year that Elvis does and there's a nightmare and all of that. So I must see him. Yes, Denzel Washington did ring me, and I do not know him. And he says, you're about to meet someone whose work ethic is like no other. Um, boy, did that come true. And then pretty much when he came in, like he even came in, I said, can you sing? He said, well, I sing a bit, you know, to a friend of mine. And my then friend and, um, used to sing to my mother, but not much. And honestly, just recently I had to put out 
a costume test I did with him, singing That's All Right Mama, to prove that he's actually singing all the young girls. I saw that, yeah. Yeah. So, but pretty much he was just down Elvis Road and it, it just continued. I mean, yes, I put him through the ringer. Yes, I checked out, could he be robust enough? Yes, I sort of had to explore... Well, he really plays young punk Elvis great. Right. How's he going to be when we start putting him in prosthetics and all of that kind of thing? But it, he just never failed. He just kept... In fact, whatever I threw at him, he doubled down and went further. And Because that must be the fear. It's like you get into kind of like kabuki theater by the end and it's in, like... Well, impersonation. Yeah. I mean, this is the most impersonated man in history. Literally. Like, literally. <laughs> there are literally competitions and people go like... you go, I've seen him. You get like a... 19-year-old kid going, I'm in grade six. Um, <laughs> the levels seventh, of, yeah. It's like seventh Dan, Elvis impersonation, <laughs> sure. and soon I'll have my black belt. Right. In, you know, And I shouldn't be facetious because that's quite what they call tribute artists, quite a beautiful art form. Sure. But it's not, and people think, I will just get a great tribute artist. But this isn't a tribute to Elvis and everything he, he was on the outside. This is revealing a man. And this is, you know, it's not an impersonation, it's a person. And that's a humanity thing and a soul thing and it's a private thing. So he not only had to get all of the, you know, matching for comeback special, every move, every look, every wink, yeah. as Priscilla eventually said when she saw it, but he had to reveal the person. And that's a whole other job. It's interesting because I heard you speak relatively early when the like the marketing was starting and you mentioned it like, comparing it as like a superhero story and I, part of me was like rolled my eyes back a little bit okay this seems like marketing marketing employee yeah then yeah. I watched the movie and I'm like oh this is a superhero origin story yeah. this is a man who has like a secret superpower that kind of comes right. from beyond yeah. he has almost like that classic trope of like the best friend who's also maybe his mortal enemy. Yeah. Um, were you thinking about that in mind? Like, guys, when did that occur to you that yeah. there are some okay, similarities? Okay, so I'm working on it. By the way, I know what you mean. I, I was uh, cautious of putting that out there. I thought, like, I oh, hell with it. I always get slammed anyway. So, <laughs> whatever I say. So, um, but you see, Elvis says it himself at the end of the movie, the real Elvis. He says, when I read the comic books, I was a hero in those comic books. Now, when I went back, and I've been researching on this and living it, I went to Memphis five years ago, and I was going, coming and going for two years. But the comic book, the Captain Marvel Jr. comic book, is in the Tupelo Museum. Right. And he copies the hair and all of that. And also, he's a, just like Captain Marvel Jr. in the comic book, he's an impoverished kid. And he goes to this damaged home with dad going off to jail. I mean, it is, it's messianic. Dad goes off to jail. Mum and he are running around trying to survive. Then the, at one stage they're living in one of the few white houses in the black environment, in, in the black community. Sure. You know, and he's got this superpower, which is he's got an Orphean-like voice yeah. and loves. And it's not just he loves music. He is music. He lives music. So the capes and everything in Elvis and the costumes and the belts and everything, I mean, that's not a stretch to see that he's, no. he's you know, he's, um, you know, style-jacking superheroes, you know? How much does the subject matter affect the style? It's obviously, as we discussed before, it's like mm. you, you're one of those filmmakers that you see a frame, oh, that's a Baz Luhrmann film. But there are still infinite variations on what that can be. How much did Elvis's flamboyance, his identity, dictate how you shot the film, how you wanted it paced, how you wanted it to feel? I mean, one of the things, there are three Elvises. Right. I mean, there's 50s punk, rebel, then there's Hollywood pop in the inner sort of bubble. And then there's, 
him pulling away and finally reconnecting with his gospel roots and his Memphis sound and he's great and then he gets caught in a trap in in this golden cage right. the International Hotel for reasons he does not understand enter the never Colonel never Tom never Parker character yeah. played by Tom Hanks I mean in all honesty if you were writing an opera a three-act opera a tragic three-act opera you would make this stuff up You'd make this story up. You go. This is great. I got a ter- you know a diabolical but entertaining kind of. Is he a villain? Is he not? Yeah. And then I've got a sort of Orphean superhero character. Um, th- I was handed a lot of slices of reality, unlike any of my other films that I had to copy. Yep. Like verbatim. Then I had to re-engineer backwards. The one thing I would say about style is that I, and I worked with Manly and everybody, and I had to sort of copy. Like the 50s, we shot on 50s lenses, you know, the 60s, 60s, and anamorphic on the 70s. So I was plugging into the periods, but I didn't want it to be nostalgic. Yep. You know? So I was always flipping the coin. It's a bit like a lot of, like everything in the film there's a historical reference for. I do compress time, but some of the more fantastical things actually happen. Right. You know, preacher puts hand on hand and says, leave him be, he's with the spirit. I found that little boy as an older man, and he told me that story verbatim. RFK gets shot while they're doing the Christmas special. You got to say something? No, but let's have a song. That happens, you know. MLK in the trailer, Dr. King. He always spoke the truth. That happens. But I, I was. It's very important to play games and do a bit of a stuff that I get a bit bagged for, the razzmatazz and the bazzmatazz or whatever people call it, because I'm trying to actually use that to keep you engaged, but also to open the door and not only show what it was, but what it felt like. Yeah. And music's a big in for that. So when, say, Austin is singing Let's Play Houses, Elvis, that's a great rock and roll 50s song, but there's nostalgia about it. It's kind of charming. And you sure. go, why were these... Why were these guys losing their minds? Why were they, the word is keening, yes. this screaming sound. I heard it once when I went and saw BTS at, at um, City Field, you know? It's yeah. like, it's just not like normal screaming. Oh, I covered Twilight. I heard it with Pattinson. Yeah, yeah, I know yeah, that yeah, sound. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? It's not normal screaming. I hear you. And um, the keening. But having Gary Clark Jr. suddenly shredding the guitar like he's in the 70s, like Hendrix, then... You understand that it felt electric yeah. and, and dangerous. I mean, if you're an adult, you hear, you're pretty, uh, I don't think I want my daughter around that. Right, you know? right. And that's what that's about. That's about opening the door, translating it. So I guess only recently I've really thought that maybe the style of Elvis and my own style have a connection. And I don't know if one dictates the other. And that is... He was from a very small town and through personal life and trauma was always searching and absorbing things around him. So he made up his own thing. He made up his own world and he made up his own aesthetic. There's definitely what we call an Elvis decorative aesthetic. And I think I've probably done that myself. I try not to be self-conscious about it and talk about it because whenever I turn in on myself, I end up um, stumbling because I get too self-conscious about it. But I think there's probably... Uh, there's a there's some degree of parallel parallel journey there. It's interesting because you're you're often talked about as a 
a romantic, a romantic kind of filmmaker. And yeah. and then when you start to look at some of the films, and most of the films, the romance, the the it ends in tragedy. These are yeah. not these are, they, these do not end well. And you have to add the word impossible romance. Exactly, exactly. And this one, like others, it's obviously very bittersweet. Um, his ending. Um, is, I mean, that's great drama, though, I guess, at its core, right? Is that why you're, I mean, is, are, are both things true? Are you romantic? And also, do you just love that twist of great drama that, that's, that the love that can't be, um, that is destined to fail is, is just alluring to you as well, or, or what? It's an interesting one, because it's come up a bit. And honestly, people think I'm joking when I go like, yeah, you're right. right like, yeah. not since Strictly Borum. It's been a while since I've done a happy ending. Yeah, And... I think what it is actually, Josh, it's the the thing about that is, is those stories are a romanticism by the very nature of it is things are better than they can possibly be. They're heightened. Right. You know, when you're in love or whether it's a romance or like, you know, it's, it's so heightened and it soars and so do the stories. They soar on the way up and then they're super powerful. But the fact that I guess I end up drawing myself towards the tragedy is that 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 has to not be sustainable at some point it dies yeah but the question is what lives on beyond it what's left is the memory or the song you know or the book in the case of Gatsby or the story it's what's left behind and it's very much Orphean in shape it's funny I used to think I dictated the underlying Greek myths but so many of them are Orphean somewhat you know yeah in that the idealist and the perfect romantic goes into the underworld in trying to get back that ideal romantic perfection. Sure. And uh, through his gift, he's going to be able to rescue it from the underworld and the king of the underworld. There's always a king of the underworld, isn't it? It's like, 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 like whether it's Ziedler or Parker <laughs> sure. or, you know, Barry Fife. You yeah, know. yeah. There's this kind of carnivalist king of the underworld who makes a trick or a, 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 a hoop that has to be jumped through. Yeah. And Orpheus travels up and loses that and grows from it, but what remains is actually the growth. It remains, the, it resonates beyond that. I, so I'm kind of wedded to tragedy, yeah. I, I have a totally random question, but when I was watching it, I was wondering, is Baz a secret Star Trek fan? Because there are a couple Star Trek visual cues yeah. in the film. <laughs> I mean, is that just because that was what was on the Vegas Strip? Hey, listen, or? Uh, well, actually, there's a real point to it. I, I mean, I loved Star Trek as a kid, any, any of that television, but actually, um, <clears throat> um, <clears throat> when we were doing a theme park back in the 90s, I think around when the colonel dies, um, Sam went on a sort of <clears throat> theme park tour of the world. And at that stage, the hotel, the hotels had then got transitioned from being like Elvis invented the showroom or the Colonel invented the showroom concept, which has come back now. But then that all turned into kind of um, themed experiences. And in fact, that hotel had the Star Trek experience on, in it. And I always thought, gee, you could see it actually, probably from the hospital. But I always liked the idea that the sign had going where no man had gone before. And early on I had this idea that the Colonel in his morphine dream would be seeing that as a neon sign saying, going where no man has gone before, which is true both of Elvis and of the Colonel. Sure. They were both damaged kids with big holes in their heart, really trying to go where no man had gone before, like sort of flying too close to the sun. 
So it is in there as a kind of Easter egg of that. Got it. So we talked a little bit about the casting process. I mean, again, this is not, I've always been fascinated by the stories of your casting sessions, and they're very unique. And it seems like you probably have the best treasure trove of tape <laughs> of talent of the last 25 years, 30 years. It's funny. You know a lot. You know, no one's ever brought that up that, in fact, I do. <laughs> Let's turn the <laughs> no screen on. Ever brought I that up. <laughs> but can you I do, I do, because I so rarely do it. I don't do auditions. Like, I don't I don't say walk in the door, mm, no, not so much. Right. When people come into my world, actors, it's the most precious thing in the world to me. And I really workshop with them, and I go, A, I'm going to try and get you this gig, no matter what I th or anybody else think, and two, I'm going to learn something about the, the, the material. It's a privilege that this I'm going to... going to help your process yeah, as much as... Yeah. I'm going to workshop with you, so yeah. I find something out about this scene done by another actor or player. Yeah. So they're really deep and they're really honest and very emotional. And it's quite... But it's better for the actors because at least they don't feel like they were judged in five seconds. I can be taller. It's not know? a cattle call. They at least have an yeah. artistic expression. And the other thing and, is yeah. I form relationships with the actors and they go on forever. And you're right. I mean... The young actors that auditioned for Romeo and Juliet, I mean, at least two-thirds of them are icons now. That's how long ago it is. Uh, actors that came in to show me that they could sing. Oh, for the Moulin Rouge must be. Yeah, and like, yeah. and like honestly, um, you know, when I think about um, um, Jake Gyllenhaal, for example, right. who was very close, very young for the role, but he can really sing. I mean, he's a really great musical artist. I mean, very, very sadly... Heath, of course. Yeah, yeah it's Heath, yeah. of course. And I have that footage. And, you know, so, I mean, I don't think I'll ever release it. Sure. But I do, yeah, fly on the wall stuff. And, you know, it's vulnerable times, but spectacular and beautiful times. I mean, there's footage where you go like, wow. Well, not only that, it's like invariably these are actors that you're catching right before. Like, they're, they're still forming and they're still raw and they're exposing themselves to you in a very special way. Whether the public sees it or not, that's just like, it's, it, it must be an amazing snapshot. And I, I really want them to come in and go out and say, well, I didn't get it, but I felt that that was really worth doing and I got something out of it because I get something out of it. You know, and I do think that happens, you know, like yeah. we won't go into the ones surrounding this because, sure, sure. you know, Maybe me and someone else accidentally let it slip, and then it's just you can never get it out of the no, I headlines. But I mean, <laughs> I mean, the thing is that that those experiences on this were really rich in different ways. It just so happened that Austin, all round, and also the fact that Austin could disappear into Elvis, you know, yeah, like that carried a lot of weight too. You know, one has to ultimately serve the story and that's never personal who do you think would have uh made a good elvis 20 25 years ago of that crop that you were talking about back in the day anyone jump out at you that feels like uh, there was a time when so i must have been thinking about elvis very long because young Elvis. there was a time when i thought leo had such an interesting look of young elvis i thought gee he'd be interesting as really young elvis but and then i kind of think like that about all actors. I'm secretly thinking like, oh, it could be, you know, or whatever, you know. Like, wouldn't they do a great Hamlet, you know? Do we know if Leo can sing? 
Have you? Oh, seen? I know. Yeah. Look, this is a bit of a touchy point. Don't bring it up with him because he can sing, but he always says to me, "Oh, I went in and sang for Baz," and he he really can sing. He sang. He sang. But um, yeah. Leo can sing. And you know, the day he does, it'll be like, oh, where has this guy been hiding this voice? I mean, he doesn't do anything. Oh, God, it's going to be a headline. He's going to be so, he's going <laughs> to rouse on me. Yeah, but he's lean on me. Yeah, he can sing. Um, I mean, I, mean I, I, I know he can sing. After, after Moulin Rouge, were you offered, like, every musical under the sun? Like, it's, yes. you, you haven't done, like, the, you've never done the classic, you know, mm. musical. Has that ever been a temptation to... Was there one that's stuck in the I mean, I mean, they come my way, and I mean, for years um, before I did Moulin Rouge, um, whoever then was controlling, I mean, various people were doing uh, Chicago. Right. And I probably would have screwed it up, you know, because I'm sort of wedded to telling the, to going on the creative adventures I go on. It's more I go, oh, I want to reinvent the musical. And doing a DNA on musicals. At one stage, I was even thinking of selling Moulin Rouge in Studio 54. So I had the Orphean myth, and I had the idea of having familiar music. Oh, no, that came later. But it was what was the world. And then the world of 1890s, Montmartre, and all of that, that came to me because I just thought there was, on the one hand, a bit of a... It's like a lot of things I do at the beginning it's like are basically seen as either cheesy or forgotten or... Moribund, I guess, is the word. And the, but what I'm interested in is why were they so great back in the day? Like, yeah. why there going? There must have been something. Yeah, why there, was yeah. going to Pigalle not just a cheesy tourist thing? Yeah, spore room dancing. You know, I grew up in it, but no one said to me, you know, you must do ballroom dancing again. <laughs> I mean, it's going to be really happening one day. You There's know? six ballroom dancing no. theaters yeah. in development. You need that's, to do one. That's right. No, 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 no. <laughs> but I just see the flipping the coin, like taking, I guess, classical things and throwing off the rust yeah. and showing the underbelly of it. So I'm drawn to that for some self-flagellating reason. Well, I don't know well, why the sufferance is there. You're getting at something that I do find interesting because you're, again, very unique among filmmakers in that you haven't been drawn into like any of the franchises at any mm. point. And there, it's all we get now, pretty much 9% of what we get in cinema. And I, like you said, I like the Batman. Yeah, I, I love... thought the last Batman was great, but you know, man cannot live by Batman. A franchise alone. I agree. I, and I've spent, look, I'm a big old nerd and I love it all, but I, I, I yeah. need you and Tarantino to do your things and everything, et cetera. Yeah. Um, that being said, like, have there been temptations? Has there, is there, is there one that if they ever came to you would be hard to say no to, to dip your toe into, mm. is there a Baz Luhrmann, James Bond take? Is there mm. a Baz Luhrmann, anything like that? I, I kind of thought a while ago, oh, gee, Bond. But, you know, I mean, and I think it's out there that I, they came to me with the first Harry Potter and I was like, right. I was like, but I think, and at the time I was like, look, that sounds great, but someone else can do that really well, mm -hmm. whereas my mission is to reinvent the musical. So maybe it's a bit, like, maybe it's a, you know, I have a too grand a sense of what my duty is mm -hmm. in storytelling, but I always feel there are these things that need to get done that probably I can do because I'm in the position to do it because I've sure. made a whole lot of things that people say, well, that'll never work, or that's a silly idea. And they have, and so I go like, you know, I mean, if I was to do a biopic, I'd want to do it in a way that 
amadeuses, and that is, it's not really a biopic of Elvis. Yeah, it's taking the his, exactly. It's taking <laughs> yeah. the historical figure and exploring a larger idea. I mean, the star of or the teller of the story of Amadeus is a guy called Salieri, the most famous composer of the time. Heard of me? No. <laughs> Who's this Mozart guy? Therein lies the story. Jealousy, my friends. Yeah. You know, that's what it is. And it's a whodunit. It's funny you talk about that because as you were talking about sort of like finding these these things that were kind of cool at the time and that now feel a little dusty. I remember when I was a kid and I saw Amadeus and I shouldn't have like by all rights be intrigued by Amadeus in any way. And yeah. it felt like the most alive thing I'd ever seen yeah. as like a 12-year-old. Do you know, while I showed it to my daughter, it's got nothing to do with whether you're into classical music or yeah. not. Nothing to do with that. What's so fantastic about it is is the is inherently where talent is put. And Amadeus, unlike Beethoven, there are these two kind of artists, really. It's like comparing Michelangelo with Da Vinci. Mm. Like Beethoven in a room banging away at a piano. You know, Amadeus out there living and out of life comes music. Yeah. You know, um, Da Vinci out there, you know, much more interested in creating parties than painting Mona Lisa's. Sure. You know, not going to them, but just creating them. You know, Michelangelo chipping away at stone. You know, they're different yeah. creative gestures. And, he, and I don't think you necessarily have to be into Elvis's music at all to be in the grand story that really explores America in the 50s, 60s, and the 70s. And this whole American gesture between the show and the business, yes. the cell and the soul, that's what you get out of this. You know, you might, you might dig some of the music as well, you know? I was saying this to Austin the other day, like, it must be a heady trip for him and maybe for you that, like, for some, this is going to introduce Elvis to yeah. young, young young folks. This is their introduction. This is yeah. their Elvis. Austin yeah. is their Elvis. Yeah. And that's kind of a responsibility and a privilege in a way. Yeah, it really is. I mean, I went through this unintentionally with Romeo and Juliet. Sure. In that yep. I'm now, 30 years later, um, I live with the reality that, um, you know, Leonardo and... Leonardo in the silvery armor and Claire in the angel wings is Romeo and Juliet. Yeah, you Google yeah, Romeo like, and Juliet, that comes on up. One, <laughs> on the one hand, like like high school teachers all over the world are happy it exists. And on the other hand, a lot of kids go, what do you mean they didn't meet looking through a fish tank? You know? <laughs> yeah, where's that line in Where's that in there? It doesn't say it in the text. Well, there's no instructions. It doesn't say from the arras or behind the curtain. Yeah, know? it doesn't not say the fish tank no, is there. I don't not, know. You know? Um, because I've been doing this a thousand years and I've been following your career and others, I'm always fascinated by the ones that got away. Is it is Alexander the Great the one, is that the one that you went through the whole process that you lived out? You <coughs> talked about kind of almost like doing it and filming the movies almost, not the afterthought, but it's 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 kind of the... Yeah. <laughs> My God, I think the book, we have this, um, all of our stuff is in a museum, but I think the book of Alexander might be here in the New York house because I want to get it because I absolutely lived that. Yeah. I mean, studying it, um, incredible adventures. I even got into Iran to see Persepolis. I was brought in by, I was helped to get in. <laughs> and it was an amazing experience. I even got extraordinary um, floor plans of Persepolis. Yeah. Um, Dino and I built a studio, Dino built a studio in, in Morocco for the film, all that. But what happens is I'm all the way down the road on it and honestly... Suddenly, um, and I bear no chagrin about it, but 
it became one of these um, um, Oliver wanted to do right. show. And I'm not a racer, you know, I can't work like that. Yeah. Plus, we really wanted to have kids and it became a moment where I went like, i got to draw a line here. Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, it was a great cast. Leonardo. In the book, you'll see Leonardo and, and I think um, and one stage Mel Gibson was going to be oh, wow. the father, the king, the mad king. Hello. Well, that works. Um, yeah. <laughs> Everyone goes like, uh-huh. No, but, um, it, yeah, yeah, I had to draw a line then. Yeah. It's, it, it took a long time to get over because I was very, sure. very, funnily enough, we were trying to get pregnant and I was very, very pregnant with his story, <laughs> you know? Elvis, towards the end of this, I mean, it's a tragic moment. He talks about, like, in his head, he's not, he hasn't contributed any, anything. There he is really no says it. He really said that line. He said, you know, Silla, I'm almost 40. Almost 40. And I've never done anything anyone will remember me by. And that hits you in so many different ways. First, yeah. you're like, oh, my God, the man's only almost, like, Yeah, 40. I'm like, almost 40. <laughs> I'm almost 60, dude. You know? Well, do you think of, of legacy? You've got a lot of work ahead of you still. But, like, you now have this body of work. Mm. And I know you maybe, like, were beat up on yourself years ago for not being as prolific as some. But, like, look, some of my favorite filmmakers are the mm. methodical ones like yourself. Um, do, you st do, do you look now at the body that you've created, these six films, as some kind of legacy? No, really. I, I, you know, I don't. You don't think look at the I, box set of of Baz. No, I mean, like I did do that a while ago. But I think actually, I just think if I just sort of remember, oh, that was a. T I don't. I mean, I have children, but they're kind of like children. You go, oh, that was the time when we did Roman Joe. I don't remember years. I just remember, oh, what were we doing? Oh, yeah, that's right. That was Moulin Rouge time. But, but as to going forward, I mean, it's not like. I do nothing. I mean, we do a variety of creative things. Yeah. Between films, I go on creative adventures, you know, whether it's a hotel, an election campaign, or, you know, um, doing a lot of music. You know, I've made a lot of music, and I love making music with great musicians and great artists. But I don't know what will happen at the end of this, because I could either just do the same old thing, which is I disappear, and they go, like, right, good, he's gone, thank goodness for that. Or I might suddenly get really prolific and, you know, there's a change coming up, and I don't know what will come from that, but there is a change coming up. Well, you look at it, I mean, if you do the math, 30 years ago, Strictly Ballroom, your, your career takes off and changes. Yeah. And now 30, you know, so like you've had two different lives, basically. The first 30, the second 30, the next act begins, in a way. Yeah, like... Will it be a three-act doctor, or, or or will the curtain come down at the end of the second act? No, <laughs> I can guarantee it. And they it. go like, you know, where's that? You know, thank God you had to sit through that third act. No. Uh, um, <laughs> um, but you know what you're saying is interesting as far as bookends go because, yeah, 30 years ago, I make a film, my first film, quite theatrical in language because I'm trying to find a way of quoting old Hollywood movies and yet keeping the metaphor rolling in the piece. Yeah. And the one distributor that had that movie, Strictly Ballroom, dumpsters and I go up the coast with Sam and a guy called Bill Marin and we're dead in the water and the story goes you know I'm shaving off my long black curly hair believe it or not I had it then <laughs> and the phone the Baker like phone rings we're in a van park and got a bucket on my head it's raining because some guy got killed by a coconut that fell out of a tree <laughs> I'm trying not to dive coconuts it was not, you know coconut coconut aside <laughs> if there's such a thing and a Frenchman says, my name is Pierre Rissian from the Cannes Film Festival. And basically it changed. And here I am, 59. And I thought 
when the film was going away, when Elvis was going away, and it was going away once Tom got COVID. So, oh, maybe I'll never see Cannes again because I really have a special relationship with it. And then we went to Cannes with a film, and, you know, I opened it twice. It's a special place for me. Yeah. So, and it was very, very special, actually. And I don't say that about a lot of things. It was very special. Um, I've been asking folks the last couple of years since, since we all went through this madness together uh, and we needed comfort about comfort movies. And I know you, you love film and you have a, mm-hmm. I'm sure there are a thousand films you can name. But I'm wondering if when I mention that, that term, comfort movie, is there a movie that you return to often when you need to, to level off to feel safe in the well, universe? Well, I, I can admit that I've seen some films more than once. And it's weird, the list, probably. Then there are these films, so the list is sort of like, you know, Lawrence of Arabia or Apocalypse Now or, you know. But um, it's weird that I look back and in all my films, and it must be some sort of tick, there are always these references to these films like Bandwagon or Sunrise, which is a silent film that's Murnau, one of my right? great, yeah, yeah, yeah. and I'm, anything Murnau, I love Murnau. And it's funny, I... Even in this, I found myself going back to Murnau a bit, you know, like just in the sort of uh, montage mechanics and things like that. Um, the comfort, I don't think I ever have time to comfort myself with a movie. Like, you know, and yeah. it's the way the life works, you know, like I, when I'm making movies, it's hard to look at them. When I'm not making movies, I'm desperate to see what's out there. I think I'm very, very much about not being nostalgic, about not, right. like, I'm just always interested in the new and what's out there. Because, like Elvis, like, I'm from a small town, and I guess I'm running down the yellow brick road, and I'm always going, like, what's around the corner? And I do want to be plugged into popular culture as it's being freshly minted. Yeah. But I also have one giant foot in the past, and I never seem to be able to unstick. So, like, this film experience through actually the It Nearly Went Away, the COVID. I mean, this is a film experience like no other. Yeah. Uh, it has energized me. It has made me more vital. But it's only opened me up to, well, what, what is the next adventure? Yeah. What's the moment that stands out from this process? I know you've already mentioned Cannes, which must have been a trip. I know the screening for the family yeah. must have been intense to say the least yeah um when did you exhale and enjoy the enjoy yourself a little oh bit? i haven't done that yet <laughs> uh, no way that. no way because i make theatrical films for the theater right and and you know what i love what tom's done with top gun he's really he's done a great job it's great and he's helped us because he's made other audience segments come out to the theater yep. and Good on, you know, the dinosaur film doing so well. Great audiences going out to the theatre. But we are not a franchise. Yeah. And I singularly carry, we don't have to be those numbers, but we need to get a diverse audience out. My films need to be seen. Strangers, friends, family, all coming together in a dark space, looking up at a screen and going, Elvis, what do I think? And yet communing in laughter, in emotion, in music, in tears, in highs and lows, that which only the cinematic experience can give us. Yeah. And I feel the pressure of that. So I'm not exhaling at all, my friend. I will say, look, not to jinx it, but like even Gatsby, that felt like a swing. Like that's going to be a blockbuster. They're spending that much on it. And yeah. look what you created. Well, yeah, but you have pros and cons. I mean, no, you have Leo, you know, you have Leo and it. Yeah, all yeah. that. And, but, but, 
you know, I, I just, that's why people think it's bonkers. Like today, Eminem released a single for the film. Yeah. Like, and that, the last line in the film is Elvis's influence on, on music and culture lives on. And I've had a lot of amazing guest artists do something about his influence. Yeah. And M, M's the key piece beginning it. It ends with Maniskin at the very end. But, um, and throughout the movie, you know, like Doja Cat translates the words of Big Mama Thorn. Doja Cat is not Big Mama Thorn. Right. But I'm opening, trying to open the doors to every segment of the audience, yeah. not to close anyone out. Last thing for you. I'm just curious. You've worked with really some of not only the greatest movie stars, but greatest actors in the last 30 years. Yeah. Who's the one that's gotten away? Who's the one on your list now or like that, that has been gnawing at you? Like, I need to spend time with Tom Hardy, Lady Gaga. I don't, you know, like, is there well, someone? Well, I want to work with both of them. <laughs> I, know, I mean, I know. I trying to I cast your next Tom, film. I think a little bit. I, uh, Gaga and I know each other very well. And she's just, she reminds me of Barbara Streisand in that she's an all-rounder. And she, if she doesn't start directing next, I'll be very surprised, yeah. but, you know. But um, yeah. she's just such a firestorm of creativity. But, um... I don't really think like that. Okay. I think like what I think like is what creative adventure do I need to go on? And then I go, why? I go looking for people who want to get on the boat and are prepared to go on the ride because it's never going to be, it's a bit buckle up. It's going to be yeah. a bumpy ride. And But ultimately fulfilling, I believe. I mean, I, most people who come on the road with me, which is why I get out there and do a lot of this. I'm not out there because I love, you know, um, doing roll up, roll up or, you know, the public part of it particularly actually I just feel the responsibility of everyone who's believed in what we're trying to make yeah. and has got on board and I want to make sure I do everything I can to bring the the ship safe home to harbour and the harbour is getting the film to the audience the widest possible audience well we're spreading the good word today Elvis is in theaters by the time people listen to this everybody should check it out it's as all your work is, a singular piece of work, you will not be disappointed. Uh, and you are seeing a, another star born in Austin uh, Butler. So congratulations, Baz, and thank you for welcoming me into no, your man, home today. No, man, you're welcome, man. You know what? You're right about Austin, I'll tell you. That, I can, that I'm happy to put my hand up and say, yeah, that's true. <laughs> uh, thanks again. Appreciate uh, it. No, great chat. Yeah, sorry about the underpants. And so ends another edition of Happy, Sad, Confused. Remember to review, rate, and subscribe to this show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm a big podcast person. I'm Daisy Ridley, and I definitely wasn't pressured to do this by Josh. 